This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. You are listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. We're going to shove some science at you now for an hour, and in the studio to help me do that is Dr. Lyndon. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. You're a climatologist that looks cold. I am cold. I've got a cup of warm tea with me, <laughs> but I'm also really happy because it rained. How great. Oh, yeah. Yeah. How great was briefly. the rain? Well, here quite here briefly, briefly yeah, but yeah. other parts other of the parts state have, have had, you know, the best rain they've had in quite a few years. Yeah. There was some pretty severe... Flooding and... Some, well, has there been a bit of flood? Oh, uh, one of my aunts sent me a picture of some road down in Rosebud or something rather right? oh. looked pretty flooded. There yeah. were some severe storms uh, as well in the southwest, mm. reports of a tornado, mini tornado in Camperdown. Yeah. Down towards Wonderful. Don't, don't sound so excited about that. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. I, always la- I always laugh when I hear an Australian talk about a, a, a tornado, tornado, or they, they have to put the word mini in it. It's like, we used to call those like whirly winds in the schoolyard. Is that what we're talking about? Or was no, it something that Dr. picked Shane, up a car? They are different things. They're different things. We get more tornadoes in Australia than you think we do. Yeah, but yeah. but they're not. Like, I was born in Texas. My parents have stories of, you know, how to drive off into ditches and hope, you know, where you're lowering ground so the tornado goes by you. And, you know, stories of having to turn left to go straight while driving. And you okay. know. Uh, Yeah, I'm not saying you need to build a tornado bunker in Australia. Yeah. But you should, if, you, if you're a storm chaser in australia you know fun yeah, yeah it's a bit of fun look to me if it can't pick up a cow it doesn't count <sighs> that's my that's no, no, my that's my me as well no yeah. word of a lie i taught tornadoes this week at university and i put in the gif from twister of the cow <laughs> of the flying cow around. Around. <laughs> i was like look at this documentary image of this cow uh, that's what tornadoes can do and more rain forecast later in the week so nice that's great nice and dr laura is in the house Good morning, Dr. Shane. She's taken a brief moment away from writing NHMRC grants. It is a sad week for medical researchers. Yeah, what is the success rate these days? Is it 8% or 10 I have trouble oh, remembering. I think it's going to be less than that this year. Do you know if you go to the Greyhounds, there are only eight dogs, and you can always eliminate two, which means one in six. Have you thought about taking your money there instead? <laughs> How sad is that? Anyway, there's a, there's a message in that for the NHMRC. <laughs> Something wrong with the system. Dr. Ray? Dr. Shane, I want to take uh, Dr. Linden's course now because uh, if, if she's got cows and tornadoes, I think that would be an exciting subject. <laughs> yeah, 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 it might be right. Yeah, look, the GIF game is strong. I'm not sure about the science game. <laughs> <laughs> You're all about the multimedia. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's a lot of those lecturers around these days. Anyway, hopefully, I'm sure you give them a lot of detail. Have you got some news for us today? I do, yes. I do have some news. And this paper uh, came across my computer when I was away for the Anzac Day period, actually. I was out in mm. Far East Gippsland and this paper interested me because I spent a lot of time when I was down there, right in Far, Far East Gippsland. I spent a fair bit of time walking along the beach, looking out across the big blue out to the Tasman Sea in the Southern Ocean. Actually, we got a few days of swimming in as well because it was pretty warm down there, pretty calm. But this new paper that's come out in science uh, was led by Professor Ian Young, actually, at the University of Melbourne, with Augustinus Ribal, uh, from University in Indonesia. This is a paper that came out in Science that has found that wind speeds actually over global oceans have increased. So while Ooh. I had a bit of a calm time on my break, uh, wind speeds over the last 30 years over the ocean have, have increased just at, slightly but significantly. At what altitude? 10 metres. Ten, so basically over the ocean. Yes, yeah, over the ocean. Yeah. So this is interesting for a few different reasons. These guys, they used 31, uh, data from 31 satellites. Mm. They had about 4 billion data points and um, they were able... So the cool thing about this is that 
the best way to measure what's going on over the surface of the ocean with wind speeds and wave heights and that kind of stuff is to use satellite information because satellites have different instruments on them that use different uh, ways. There's a few different independent ways that you can look at how wind speeds are changing Mm. over the surface of the ocean, mainly by looking at how rough the water is, and that way you can derive what's going on with the winds. But it's only now that we've got enough data that satellites have been around for long enough for us to look at this longer term variations or any kind of trend analysis so these guys use all this information and yeah they took into account oh we've had an increase in satellites over time and the technology has changed they did a really careful job of Mm -hmm. identifying how that might affect the record and yeah they found that wind speeds not just mean wind speeds but the 10 percent of like the windiest of wind speeds have increased significantly and the most significant place is the Southern Ocean. Mm. So the windiest 10% of winds over the Southern Ocean have increased by about 8% over okay. the last 30 years. Yeah, so that's what I was going to ask you, like 8%, mm. because often when you hear this scenario, someone says, you know, you, you drink coffee, it's going to increase your risk of this, mm. and you, you look at the data and it's 0.04%, yeah, and look, there's there's some data that says increase, but it's like, yeah, it's in the I don't care factor. Yes, it, it is small. It's like 1.5 metres per second over 30 yeah. years, and that doesn't sound like a lot, but... What's it, that up to in terms of energy? Well, and, exactly, yeah. right. Right. If you've got an increased wind speed and you've got increased sort of exchange between the atmosphere and the ocean, that's going to change the amount of heat mm. or amount of mm. CO2 that can get sucked into the ocean. And if that changes in the future, can have big impacts. So Dr. Shane's question, Dr. Ray's question. No, 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 no. I think it's interesting. I actually looked at this article last week because it was pretty cool. Mm. Just when, oh, I'm not a climate scientist. I don't, I don't think I can understand this enough to talk about. It. But I thought one of the things they noted was it was just the averages were moving up but that they saw a lot of increases in the top end speeds. Exactly, yeah. So, I mean, isn't that significant for that one wave that blows a ship over? Well, yeah, so that's the thing. They look at wind speed and wind direction, and then they also looked at waves. They looked at the wave height, and in the wave height department, they didn't see as many significant changes because some waves are driven by wind, but other waves Mm. are driven by deeper ocean swell. Uh, But in the Southern Ocean, they saw a significant increase. About 30 centimetres, the wave height has increased by about 30 centimetres in the past 30 years, which is important for infrastructure and inundation and stuff but yeah the extremes and the means are also changing interesting stuff love satellites we're going to be talking about space stuff uh, later in the show we're going to guest on that i can't wait dr laura what do you got for us everyone's picking something that's you know interesting to them you know we've got a bit of wind (laughs) from london (laughs) and i've got a study which is a bit more resurrection yeah resurrection (laughs) frankenstein research bringing brains back from the dead if there are any game of thrones spoilers going on you should probably let people know (laughs) So this is this is some real stuff, and this study, um, which is about scientists reviving pigs' brains, copped um, an enormous amount of press. It was a huge study um, that came out in Nature a couple of weeks ago, and it was by scientists at Yale University. And um, you know, it really kind of makes us think about is when when is dead dead? But okay, so mm. what what they did is they took 32 pigs from a slaughterhouse, and these pigs had been dead for four hours already. Okay. And then they took the brains from the pigs, and they hooked them up to a system called BrainX, and this is this is really key this system and this brain system it's a little bit like dialysis so you know you connect up the vessels and it pubs through artificial blood that you know is putting through you know oxygen and chemicals and nutrients and um they cook this up for six hours and then they look after 10 hours and what they found is that um these these brains which were dead obviously um cellular functions were back up and running what cellular functions though like which ones like how much is 
Is the pig back? No, the pig's not back. So yeah. this is where the press got a bit out okay, of hand yeah, because yeah. it was like bringing back to life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was no consciousness. It was not actually bringing back to life, but a lot of the but a lot of the cellular functions were back up and running. So the cells were taking up oxygen, but there was actually no right. connectivity um, right. throughout so, the neurons. So the brain, the brain is a functioning item is kind yeah. of gone. But the the baseline materials. But the are cells have come back to life, yeah. and the cells are taking up glucose. The cells are taking up oxygen, and that was absolutely huge because you know generally, and the dogma is you know before this study, and this is why it's so groundbreaking, is that you know ten to fifteen minutes without oxygen, your brain dead. The brain is dead. Yep. But the brain can be brought back to well, cells in the brain can be you know have restorative function several hours later after brain death. So that's mm. really huge. So what does that mean, like? In terms of in terms of human health and so forth, what does that actually mean in terms of how long you should leave it, or you know, is reasonable for a person to be dead before you actually say we shouldn't revive them again? Yeah, and there's actually a lot of um, ethical kind of news pieces coming out sort of this week on the basis of this study of what this means. I mean, there, you know. The major implications of this study is that you're able to now researchers are able to get a better handle on studying the brain because you can bring back these cellular functions. But the important point is is that you weren't able to restore consciousness. Yeah. Well, at least to which we could measure, Mm. to which scientists could measure. Of course, I mean the neurons weren't connecting. So, sorry. Was there any cellular degradation? I mean, they said it came back on, but did they? No, the brain looked healthy. Okay. Ten hours later, the brain looked healthy. They, but did they actually then do post things where they actually looked at individual cells, integrity, the cell membrane, things like that, or? Um, I'm not. I don't think they went. That's kind of happened Mm. at this stage. But um, the sort of you know one of the things that was really exciting the scientists is that now they have this they can you know use this model of an intact brain so they can start to look at these sorts of things they can start to look at the impact of drugs therapies for stroke and so forth because you can have this intact model of a brain now which you can uh Dr. Lloyd, that, like, it's an amazing finding, but was it a surprising finding to the scientists? Did they expect that there would be connectivity in the brain? Well, connectivity they didn't find, but bringing... No, did they expect to? No. Okay. But bringing... But bringing cells back to life after 10 hours, that's yeah. hugely yeah. surprising. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've always known that, you know, you can take cells out of different organs. You can culture them in dishes and you can, you know, get cells to, you know, live in dishes for a long time. But coming out of an intact, dead brain, you know, that's, yeah. you know, come four hours later, that's hugely yeah. surprising. You know, the thing I love about this is the fact that, you know, you as a, you know, immunology, virology expert who's got access to all sorts of weird and wonderful <laughs> viruses pick this story that gives me hope that you're one of those scientists loves sick shit (laughs) (laughs) of course you wouldn't act that way at work but uh, you know it's it's just you two personally i love it um it's this is going to give that guy is it a guy in korea or somewhere who's trying to do the head transplants is that that guy? He hasn't done it yet, but he's working on it with dogs. This came out in the news a couple of years ago. He's been I thought that was a movie the... called Human Centipede. No, uh, no, 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 no. This, this is this is a guy. I think I think it was in Korea somewhere or, or somewhere somewhere nearby where they've been talking about the possibilities put out that he can do. He's going to be able to do a head transplant soon. He's been trying it on dogs, and there's a lot of ethical issues around that, as you might imagine. He would have seen this and got very excited, I'm sure. Well, you know, there's there's people who've actually you know been insisted on being frozen in, in yeah. liquid nitrogen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Their head dismembered i mean yep. now they'll be like can you freeze my head and connect it up to um brain x yeah you know yeah, oh, yeah. pump yeah. it through get the cells living again yeah slowly oh. moving towards futurama yeah. by the sounds of it yeah <laughs> yeah i want to be frozen now dr ray dr shane all right so um yeah this one's a little off the wall too so it's a, a new study in looking at 
uh, runoff chemicals in rivers. And this is a study from King's College and University of Suffolk where they sampled 50, 15 different sites in the county of Suffolk looking for contaminants. Now, normally, instead of just looking in water, they also looked in a freshwater shrimp. Mm. And I, so they also sampled the water and the shrimp, so they were looking at uptake. And what was interesting about the study was a lot of times we don't understand quite what it means in uptake in these animals, like in terms of its pressure on uh, or toxicity to the animal. So it was a, a very new analysis, and it was it was able to have a very good span of what it can detect at very low levels and started to be able to talk about, well, if you find this contaminant at this level in these shrimp, you can decide whether or not it's actually a bad impact or not. And so one of the, the, the why it made the news know was the chemicals it found. The one that showed up at all 15 sites in its highest concentration was cocaine. Totally. Uh, and the second one was lidocaine. And both of those were actually higher than nicotine in mm. those runoffs. And What's lidocaine, Dr. Lidocaine. Lidocaine. Yeah. We That's were, hasn't eliminated. It, it, it numbs you. Mm. Okay, so, thank you. Um, oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's a numbing agent. But, but also they I'll found... I'll some uh, later. You can try that. So. <laughs> yeah, they also found ketamine, Valium, Xanax, Tramadol. Uh, and unencouragingly, they also found at least one banned fertilizer. Um, and, and so some of this is runoff, but this is in, in rivers, so it's also where wastewater goes into. And, and so it just kind of went, you know, at first you're like, wow, so is this like a shrimp jonesing for a high or looking mm. for it? But um, w- w- as it turns out, these were all in reasonably low concentrations, but they were there. So no one thing save one of the pharmaceuticals was necessarily adding any species pressure on the shrimp other than the fact it did have a lot of things in it that you wouldn't expect. But it also brought to light that this is probably one of the first studies that's able to to look at this level and have a have a better protocol and method to connect to whether or not hmm. you have a toxic pressure on an animal. Uh, and it also defines how maybe they should look at policy in this area as well. Plus, it, it was just kind of, they they haven't always necessarily looked for illicit drugs. And it was kind of like when they did, they're like, wow, they're all there. Um, and it, particularly uh, cocaine and ketamine were, were, were kind of high on the list. Yeah. Also, the, the, like they had a, a heat map of the different concentrations of the different chemicals. And it, it did strike me like, like cocaine was actually higher than nicotine. So yeah. nicotine would have been runoff, possibly water runoff, but, you know. The cocaine yeah. one was higher. And yeah. Dr. Ray, is this coming out of the UK? This is coming out of the UK in Suffolk. Yeah. But we're Suffolk still, County. We, we were talking about going down to the big market so, and getting so, some shrimp after the show, right? <laughs> yeah. Sorry to talk about your homeland in such a. Have you been back in Suffolk lately? Or, no, no. <laughs> yeah, there was a, a spike that they're trying to correlate with your travel, Dr. Laura. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, <laughs> indeed. 102.7. Yeah, welcome back everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gago on 3 R. In the studio with us now is Kate Ferris. She's from the March for Science Australia group that had an event yesterday. Kate, welcome to the studio. Thank you very much for having me. Look, it's great to have you in. And it was unfortunate that your event yesterday was literally, you know, a few hours before our broadcast today. So yeah. we couldn't quite coordinate getting you on before, before the event. But give us a bit of a rundown first, um, of March for Science Australia because 
I think most people listening will have encountered it in some fashion over mm. the last few mm. years, but tell mm. us where did it start and how long has it been going and so forth? Well, it really started in 2017 where, you know, we had this kind of groundswell of, of people kind of just a, a little bit angry <laughs> of scientists who were a little bit angry and non-scientists, like scientist mm. supporters as well, yep. just coming out. We had 4,000 people um, coming out for the March for Science yeah. in, in Melbourne. Um, and it really was about science advocacy, um, which is different from science promotion and, yeah. you know, a little bit of... You know, so there was a real gap there uh, that, that sort of March for Science wanted to fill yep. because we were seeing things like, you know, defunding of, of mm. really important science organisations and um, sort of denial of, of climate facts and things like that that... Mm. that people needed a strong voice for yeah um and I, mean, I, I mean i was at that event i mean were you guys at that event as well it, 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 no tragic all three of you anyway um <laughs> but but it was it was really interesting because there was a lot of anger there at the time yeah. and it was at the time i think that you know the the promoter of it was that um the gillard government at the time was about to pull 400 million dollars out of the medical research budget which mm -hmm. is a monstrous amount of money to clear out in in a given year and that would have been you know to be fair, catastrophic to science in Australia. And, and these events essentially, you know, I think you'd give them a fair bit of credit for putting a stop to that, actually, because they happened all over the, the country, as I yeah, recall. Absolutely. I went to the Melbourne one, but they... They were everywhere, weren't they? they yeah, were. similar numbers in Sydney, and it was mm. Townsville, and um, Adelaide, Perth, Hobart, Launceston. There was two marches in Tasmania. Right, two in Tasmania. <laughs> yes. Go Tasmania. Yeah. yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah, and I mean, since then, it's interesting because that march was for a specific purpose back then, and as you say, there was a lot of advocacy in, in general for science, but it was to stop that that cut. Mm. But it's continued. So what? Yes. Uh, so what has that meant? For, for it over the last three or so years? Well, it, I think this year it's kind of grown in its purpose. Um, you know, so it's less about numbers of people and, f you know, finding a way to express that, you know, that, that anger in a positive mm. direction. Mm. So we really want to partner with organisations that are already doing some fantastic advocacy work like yep. Royal Society of Victoria. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, they doing have always done great work in terms of promotion of yeah. science. Partly because they're, they're led by a, a great guy, Mike Flatley, Mike Flatley an old yeah. buddy of mine. <laughs> He's just a fantastic guy who really knows how to, you know, put things in the right place. And him, like, you know, we're basically non-scientists, or we yeah, call ourselves yeah, yeah. non-scientists. But I actually think we are both, you know, scientists in the broader sense. We're very curious people. Yep. You know, so so we share that passion for science, and you know, we we just want to advocate for that better and work out work together with these organisations. Mm. Yeah. So how do you feel, Kate, that the March for Science is fitting in with the kind of growing other sorts of science anger that's happening in other areas, you know, Trump and all those different things and thinking about the strike for climate and other other fights that are being fought. How does the March for Science complement or fit in with those? I think it can really provide direction because there are, as I was sort of saying, there are a lot of great organisations out there that are already doing some work, but... You know, we felt really dis, dis, separate and, you know, I didn't, you know, t tell a secret. I didn't actually know the Royal Society of Victoria existed before 2017. Uh, same, same here, to be honest. I, I had some vague knowledge of it because every Commonwealth country has one. Yes. But beyond that, it was like, the what? The what? And what yeah. do they do? And, and they need a botanical garden somewhere or, you know, so, yeah, like. Birkin Wills was involved yeah. in something. <laughs> That's all I knew. Exactly. So yeah. there are all these amazing organizations I didn't even know existed and probably half the people there didn't know existed yeah. and, and the, and the incredible work that they're already doing. 
So what went down yesterday for those who couldn't attend? Oh, it was amazing. I mean, first of all, it's it's all up on the, the Royal Society of Victoria's Facebook feed, so mm-hmm. you can see mm-hmm. the whole show. I mean, it's a little bit dark, so apologies for that. But it's um, but really, we had these really deep discussions about. Um, how these uh, amazing scientists that were participating, you know, Amy Edwards, Anita Go, um, and uh, Kudzai, sorry, Kanhutu, and um, Simon Pampina, and of course the lovely Mike Flatley was um, uh, moderating the panel. So really, um, we're having these deep discussions about how we best can advocate for science, um, it, you know, as scientists, as science um, lovers and promoters and all of this sorts of things. So there were some really fantastic insights that they had um, about communicating science to the public and advocating science. And, and can you give us a couple of examples of that? Because this is where I think... I mean, if I was to give science overall a scorecard at the moment, it would not be great. Mm. It would not be great. And, I give, and, and a couple of examples of that, one around vaccinations, mm. another around things like stem cell therapies, another around things like GM crops. Mm. You know, I could, I could, the list goes on of where we haven't quite got it right. And in some cases, the consequences, you know, this measles outbreak in the US and so forth, are quite profound. Yes. Because and, we've, we haven't got it right. Yeah. So, I mean, what, what sort of insights did they... I mean, can you give us some oh, examples? Uh, could I actually had an an excellent point just going off that about uh, uh, science being a human right you know that was an mm-hmm. excellent point I thought and and how that can play into the advocacy and um, and and basically um, you know uh, there were some excellent points made about um, sort of the, the exact sorts of techniques we can use like increasing science literacy in the public mm-hmm. sphere um, as well as training scientists on how to, you know, do how public do engagement, yeah, yeah, yeah. And which we don't do. No, and yeah. but typically because they're not rewarded. Yeah. So yeah. you know, when you're not rewarded for something like that in academia, you know, you've got to. You've, they're very time poor. Academics mm. are very time poor. Mm. So you've got to focus on the things that you know are, are rewarded in in your career. Of course, yeah, yeah. that's that's perfectly normal. Yeah. So there's some f- fantastic insights from these panelists that mm. I thought were really well worth sharing and and discussing. Mm. And, and Kate, what's the upshots of these discussions? How do you mm. move forward from here after having that panel discussion? Yes, well, I would encourage all uh, of these different kinds of organisations that do, are doing advocacy work to come forward and say, how can we best serve you? Um, how, can, well, how can we use our um, our momentum and our passion for, for science advocacy uh, to not reinvent the wheel and, and come together? Mm-hmm. And so are you reaching out to several organisations? Uh, uh, so Royal Society of Victoria uh, are wonderful in that capacity they've already stepped forward and said you know how can we you know how can we work together on this on this issue mm. so yeah mm. so you spoke a lot about communicating with the public but was mm. there any discussion yesterday about communicating to decision makers i mean speaking to the public is sort of an amorphous <laughs> blob in lots of ways yes exactly but when it comes to decision making were there any tips of how you need to you know nuance your advocacy for that uh, y- yes, well, the fact that, that, that scientists aren't, and, and researchers aren't very well trained in that area, um, it's, 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 you know, like science engagement with politicians is a difficult thing. Mm. Um, and it is very nuanced and it is very, um, very, very difficult. 
process to do. So, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, and it's something, I mean, even even when you look at governments where there is a, a large number of scientists in governments, it doesn't make them more science-savvy. I mean, that's that's been shown that there, there, are, there are difficulties there. Kate, yes. in terms of um, March for Science Australia, I mean, are there other events coming up? Um, so what's next post-yesterday? Well, there are two of us <laughs> for March for Science Melbourne yep, that yep. are really... Yep. Two people, I mean, like we're, we're yeah, yeah. very, very limited in our capacity. We all work full time. I'm, yeah. I'm doing PhD at the moment, so it's it's incredibly we're incredibly time poor and resource yeah. poor at the moment uh, for, from from Melbourne branch. But um, look, I'm I'm quite hopeful and positive that we can maintain the momentum. Mm. But there's no planned events. There are no okay. planned events. Well, so watch, watch this space. Watch this space. Sounds yeah. like sounds like Mike and yeah. Royal Society are helping out. So that's a good thing yeah, as well. Yeah, fantastic. And go from there. Yeah. Kate, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us. I hope I hope this does continue because I think it's it's had a pretty profound impact in previous years. Oh, and wonderful. there's you know there's a lot of problems we still have to resolve. So yeah. it'd be good to see a, a good grassroots movement, especially given the number of scientists that tend to get in involved in these things or at least have in the past so thanks for chatting to us thank you very much for having me kate ferris is from march for science australia three triple You are listening to Triple R, folks. This is a science show. If you haven't guessed it already, I'm Dr. Shane. And in the studio with us now is Dr. Jason Paxman. He's a senior postdoctoral researcher in the Department of Biochemistry and Genetics at the La Trobe Institute for Molecular Science, which, if you haven't guessed it by the many guests we've had over the last year, is from La Trobe University. Jason, welcome to the studio. Thanks, Shane, for having me on. Look, uh, you're... um you're working in an area that, you know, scares the crap out of me, frankly, which is with regards to bacteria and so forth. And you know, we were just saying d- during the break when you first came in, there's, there's really very few new antibiotics on the market to yep. help us with this problem, right? So wh- what have we had over the last sort of couple of decades? A, a couple? Yes, yeah, so we've only had actually one new antibiotic in the last 15 years that's actually come onto the marketplace. So yes, yep. it is it is a big problem. And um, and this, this when, when we talk about overuse of antibiotics, I mean, I, I think one of the things that people forget is we're talking about industry use as well as just personal health care use. Yeah, exactly, yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And Actually, we're, I think we're one of the most um, <clears throat> antibiotic prescribing nations in the world. So we have, yes, yeah. we use a lot of antibiotics um, here good. in Australia. Now, now, you're working on what are called virulence factors. What's a virulence factor for bacteria? Okay, so um, the definition of a virulence factor is, I suppose, um, well, the virulence factors that we work on are any bacterial protein, any bacterial protein which helps the bacteria cause an infection. Okay. And in terms of, so can you give us some examples of that? So what sort of, is that um, ability to get past our immune system? I mean, what? Yeah, yeah. So um, uh, they can be, there's a, quite a few different types, um, a lot of different yeah, uh, mechanisms per se. Um, there are virulence factors which help bacteria stick to parts of the human body. Yep. There are also virulence factors which work as toxins, which, you know, um, involved in, in breaking up the tissue. Um, an important group of virulence factors are those which create biofilms. We've probably um, heard about um, biofilms before. So yep. biofilms are these communities of bacteria which are uh, protected from the components of the immune system are also protected from when you take antibiotics. They're a major right. cause of antibiotic resistance. Yep. Yep. So there's, there's quite a different lot of um, types of virulence factors. Could you just back up? Take the virulence out. What's a factor? Because I'm an engineer and <clears throat> what I think is a factor is must yeah. not be what you think. And thinking. for mathematics <laughs> as well, I'm yeah. like, oh, a factor yeah. of <laughs> four? <laughs> so when, when we say virulence factors, sort of virulence factors encompasses everything because some 
so, some some things of, of the bac- that bacteria produce, which cause virulence or pathogenesis or infections, can be protein based or can, they can be sugar based as well. So virulence factors encompass everything. So we sort of say factor because so they're molecules the bacteria makes. They could be a range of different types that lead that help it infect something. Exactly, exactly. Call it a virulence thing. Thanks. A virulence thing. <laughs> so the a immunologist says thing. Okay, <laughs> I, I can deal with things. Yeah. And, and presumably these um, these also change for bacteria as they go along. So I mean, we we learn you know bacteria evolve really bloody fast. So That's do correct. they do they develop new virulence factors you know during their life cycle as they go along? They do. Um, you know, bacteria bacteria replicate quite rapidly. Um, I think E. coli has got a replica- replication time of about thirty minutes. And so mm-hmm. obviously there's you know their their ability to put mutations into into various things is is quite a high rate. So they do their virulence factors can change and evolve mm. over time quite rapidly. Now, now, one of the ones you were, you were looking at, which I, I found fascinating, actually, I hadn't really thought about this, but it's the sort of stickiness um, capability of bacteria. So, so talk us through that. I mean, why does a bacteria need to be able to be sticky? Yeah, that's right. So... Um I should should I touch on what we did in the in the paper as yeah, well? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. So, just a little bit of background, a bit more detail in myself. So, um, I'm a structural biologist, um, and what I do is I look at the molecular structures of proteins. Um, and um, I should mention my my boss, Dr. Bogonya Harris. So we we work together to understand the molecular structures of bacterial virulence factors or, or bacterial virulence um, uh, virulence factors, proteins based protein based virulence factors. Now, to give you an idea, what we what we use is we use a facility called the Australian Synchrotron. It's mm-hmm. like a big um, you light know, source. Yeah, it's like, yep. yeah, it's like a big ice skating rink yeah, in, yeah. in the uh, just across the road from Monash. Yep. Um, and what we do with the Australian Synchrotron is we use this facility to get um, high resolution images of these tiny virulence factors. Our particular protein is about ten na- uh, nanometers in size. Mm-hmm. To give you an idea, um, sort of compared to sort of what probably your listeners may have used, I might have used like a light microscope, but a light microscope gives you a resolution of around 200 nanometers. So these structures we look at uh, are in the Armstrong range, which is actually 0.1 nanometer, so they're quite small. The overall structure itself is about 10 nanometers. Yeah. So the human hair, by comparison, is 50,000 nanometers. There you go. Yeah. That's a good, yeah. Um, and anyway, getting to the point, so we... We get the structures of these proteins, which are these globular-like structures. And with these structures, we can then infer how these proteins work, okay? So um, in terms of this uh, adhesin, or this um, what, we, what we've affectionately called a, a superglue protein, mm-hmm. looking at the structure, we can sort of look at, we can um, infer what that protein might do. And then we, we back that up with um, experimental studies in the lab. And what we found was... Um, with this um, this protein, it's called uh, UPAB. This this superglue protein. This protein is required to basically stick um, the the pathogen, which in this case is Europathogenic E. coli, to um, the urinary tract, mm, okay. and allows for it to basically stick in and to form um, very closely to the to the uh, uroepithelial cell surface. Basically, it lets the bacteria stick. So then it can then start an infection. So sticking is, is paramount. It's one of the most important steps in infection. If a bacteria mm. can't stick, they then can't cause an infection. And there must be a, an incredibly fine tuning to that because I, I remember years ago 
I personally did some work on uh, inhalants, and these inhalants had to be sticky enough to end up in the lung, but not sticky enough to end up in the throat. And there was this very, very particular sweet spot where you, mm. you had to get that. I, I mean, I can imagine other parts of the body are even more sophisticated because they're designed to get rid of stuff, you know, out of our out of our body. I mean, the, the bacteria must be very, very specific in its ability <coughs> to get this protein just right to stick on. Yeah, and and. To, well, actually, to be honest, we actually don't know. Yeah, right. <laughs> we're just uncovering it now. So this group of proteins that we work on are the biggest group of virulence proteins from bacteria, and we only actually have the mechanisms of action for two. Mm. There's about 150,000. Wow. And, yeah. they're, and they're basically, um, you know, these, these, these proteins <clears throat> come from bacteria that are responsible for things like food poisoning, whooping cough, meningitis, typhus fever, chlamydia, influenza, mm. name, name many. Um, but the, the thing I want to touch on, though, is when you know the structure of these things and how they work, yep. then you can go ahead and you can actually make drugs to sort of block them. So yep. in this example, um, with this adhesin <clears throat> or this, this superglue protein, if we know the molecular determinants that allow it to stick, mm. we can then design drugs to basically bind to the protein and block it from working. Yeah. So that's that's a big, and, a big part of what I think do. it's really interesting to me these uh, whenever we come at what I would call more mechanical ways of stopping bacteria. You know, so like when you you phys- I, I remember there was some other research um, a few years back that looked at things that could bend and break bacteria physically rather than trying to attack it chemically. You know, so this idea of just it not being able to stick where it needs to stick is a more mechanical approach in a way to to treating bacteria. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I was just, and you mentioned the mechanism. To engineer a drug, you do have to understand the mechanism. And for there to stick to an epithelial cell layer, doesn't it, is it, is it most likely hijacking an existing pathway to stick or an already existing set of receptors or proteins that are on that cell that it's just evolved over time to match? Exactly, exactly. So this particular protein binds, um, this particular superglue protein binds to two proteins on your epithelial cell surface. <clears throat> um, a sugar called a glycosaminoglycane. That's a mouthful, I know, we gag for short, and fibronectin. And they're both involved in, um, uh, what's called the extracellular matrix, which basically allows the, the cells in your body to basically not move around. It's so like a mesh work. With the prevalence of, say, fibronectin, is it a surprise it would follow a pathway like that? Or, and then, then my follow on is, cause fibronectin is so prevalent, do you run the risk of, does drug design a challenge there? In, in something, okay, so this protein binds to fibronectin, and then if you put in something which will block it, it might bind to fibronectin in your body. That's the thing. So that's, that's the sort of the key, um, for getting these molecular structures, because we can really sort of tailor make drugs that will say for example bind to this superglue protein and not bind to the fibronectin and the other thing that i want to touch on as well because you were talking about um, bacteria in your intestine and we already have a lot of commensals in our intestine and this particular example is on uropathogenic e coli so it's in your urinary tract there's a lot of commensal bacteria and so a lot of these you know you were mentioning about Mm. mechanical shearing and things like that when we've got these structures, we can tailor make drugs that specifically block, you know, the pathogen, the pathogen virulence protein, without hopefully affecting your commensals because they're also they also need to stick as well, but they stick, you know, for the purposes yeah. of good, good rather good than reasons. evil. Yeah. 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 Um, and the last thing I want to touch on just just briefly is that <clears throat> um, sort of a new sort of thought that we've had is that, you know. 
okay, so we look at these proteins in sort of a bad light, you know, the evil proteins. <clears throat> but once we actually, well, this particular superglue protein, mm. once we know how this protein, well, we've worked out how it works, we've thought, hold on for a moment, there's nothing in modern medicine that's like this particular protein. Yeah. Can we take this protein away from the bacteria and use it for good? And that's what we're thinking about using, doing yeah. at the moment. So yeah. using this protein for things like diagnostics, drug delivery, those kind of things. So we can it, actually use them for good too. It, it sounds like a good approach. And um, the more, you know, it's like uh, the whole immunology for cancer stuff. I mean, it's uh, 20 years ago we weren't touching it. And now, you know, it's become standard care. So Jason, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us. I mean, it's, re- it's great to hear all this stuff coming out of the synchrotron too, because people often don't hear about what comes out of the synchrotron. Yeah, more synchrotron. I want yeah, to hear about yeah, the synchrotron. Well, I mean, in fact, you guys out at uh, the Latrobe Institute of Molecular Science are really engaged with the synchrotron, which is good to hear. So thanks so much for chatting to us, and uh, good luck with the ongoing work, and hopefully we'll um, be dealing with more and more bacteria as we go on. Thanks so much for having me on. Dr. Jason Paxson is from the Department of Chemistry and Genetics at the Latrobe Institute for Molecular Science at Latrobe Uni. Triple. Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gago. It's very exciting. We have Graham Koenig in the studio. He's the CEO of a new program called Frontier SI. Graham, welcome to Triple R. Thanks for having me. It's good. I haven't seen you in about 15 years, and neither of us have aged a day, can I just say? Totally. We're looking great. Uh, Now, this is exciting because um, just recently, the Smart Satellite Cooperation Research Centre, or the SmartSat CRC, received 55 million, I understand, in a recent funding announcement. And And this has led to what you're calling Frontier SI now. So give us a bit of background on on this process. So sure. So just to talk a little bit about SmartSats. SmartSats are a new venture. It's uh, It's been announced by the current government mm-hmm. and it really brings together $55 million worth of Commonwealth money yep. with another match that's matched with industry uh, money as well. So okay. it's about $110 million as well yep. as a substantial amount of in-kind which come, comes comes through from, from all the partners as well. So yep. you're up to about... Two forty-five okay. million in terms of the the size of this, in terms of the uh, pledges and commitments and yep. contributions for the for the programs they're going to run. Mm. And uh, Over so five, it's a, five years, uh, it's a seven seven years. Yep, it's a seven year exercise. So yeah, it's it's a it's a big it's a big endeavour. So most people in the space industry are really excited about it. Yeah. And and in terms of us, uh, just to answer your question about Frontier SI, we're an organisation that's come out of another CRC, the CRC for Spatial Information, and so mm-hmm. um, we've continued our part has wanted us to keep going and so we've got a really strong core competency in data, data analytics uh, positioning, spatial data infrastructures yep. and uh, that's a key part of the, the uh, SmartSat CRC now, going forward. Now one of the things that we announced on this show, I think it was last year now was this idea that Australia finally has a, a proper space association or you know like, yep. a, you know, like a version of NASA. Let's, let's say not quite as big but we have something like that. And I think we were, what, the second last OECD nation to actually... Or we might have been the last, didn't they? Very close. Very yeah. close call? Very, very close, uh, yeah. I think uh, uh, beat Iceland. Iceland, think, just yeah. by a couple of weeks. Yeah, but, we, yeah, right. you know, we don't want to be... You know, we want to be the best at everything, and we were the best at coming last. Yeah. Um, but this is something interesting to me, because Australia uses a lot of space resources, and presumably as a as an importer, is that the case, rather than homegrown stuff? Or? Yeah, de- definitely. Uh, definitely, we've been one of the... We're a big user of space technology. Um, we're a big we're a big economy and therefore a big mm. user. So, yeah, and... and uh, 
extremely a, a net, net importer. So, so this is an opportunity really for us to get organised. You talk about the Australian Space Agency, mm. and that's that's um, that's a welcome announcement as well. It's been it's a startup really. It's only yep. been running less than twelve, yeah, months, 12 months, but yeah. it's got its priorities sorted now, and and um, it's really a lightning rod for the industry to organise itself um, to speak with a coordinated voice to governments in Australia and, and really focus on uh, getting the industry structures right. Can, can you give us a bit of an idea of, you, you mentioned the, you know, this, this use of imported data and so forth. Mm. Um, where is it used? So, I mean, we heard the example, Dr. Lindengain, earlier of looking using satellites to measure wind speeds and so mm. forth. But, I mean, we're a massive farming nation where there's a lot of mining. I mean, where, where do we see the use of data in terms of, you know, what, what Australia does? You mean does? data from space? Yeah, data from space, oh, data from satellites, yeah. data from, you know, any aspect of space technology. Okay, so that's a, there's a, we, we're a big users of space data. In fact, the, the world is. So if you just, uh, you really think about, Space data in terms of communications, in terms of positioning, and uh, we and we talk about observation or Earth observation. Mm-hmm. So if you just think about positioning, well, everyone's got a mobile phone yep. um, that's tracking where they're they're moving. Um, but that that signal in there is also being used to time our um, bank transactions. It's being used to look at faults in the energy market. Um, it's got a, a variety of uses around synchronisation as well. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's used in the mobile phone comms. So it ha- every time you move around using your phone, Phones, the the positioning signal signal basically does the handoff from the mobile towers, so that's just yep. positioning. I think, uh, and, and it's an interesting point you make there. Like when we think about GPS, it's not just position, but it's also time. Exactly. So, so the data that you get is is both time and position. That's right, and that's specific to where you are. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, so important stuff. Yeah. Absolutely. And so we're using the atomic clocks, right? So yeah. Uh, and then if you then you look at comms, well, uh, well, communications is a majority. Everyone's mobile mm. phone. Phones run over that. Our Netflix is being served yep. served up on that, so that's a that's a big big market as well. And then uh, you come back to Earth observation. Well, there's a just a variety of uses of the satellite data coming down from that as well. And and we don't even talk about we haven't talked about the weather, the mm, weather satellites, yeah. which give us everything that we do with weather. So really, yeah. we're just so extremely reliant on space data. Yeah. Well, Lynn, did you want to find out? Uh, I think Dr. Linden first. <laughs> Too many questions. Yeah. Uh, so with Frontier SI, I had, had a couple of questions. The first one, I guess, is is how how is this money going to be spent? Are you thinking about new infrastructure, Australian space infrastructure? So so the so the SmartSat CRC really has three programs, and Frontier SI's interest is really around Earth observation, so I'll come to that last. Uh, but certainly the, the, first, the first two programs... Are fundamentally about communications and also about uh, satellite systems themselves. So they're looking at looking at how you uh, really put together a more uh, up to date model of satellites in space. So in in short, how you um, target target spots on Earth and 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 have better technologies around that. How groups of satellites can work together to um, to mm. to first of all process data in space. Um, Pass data between themselves and then send it send it down to Earth. So really, really smarter satellites is one of the mm. one of the one of the programs. And when it, when you come to Earth OBS, Earth observation, you're really looking at um, just how you can make sense of all those all those data streams coming down and pr- build new applications on top of that. There, there, there must be some really new elements around this whole thing of cubesats and miniature satellites these yeah. days too, because you know gone are the days when only the richest nations could actually put satellites in space. I mean, now commercial launch vehicles and so yep. forth, you know, 
four or five of us could probably put together enough money, money to put a small satellite in space. I mean, what, what does that mean for the, for the industry in terms of the, the complexities, the things you can do? Oh, it's changing. It's just changing all the business models mm. for sure. There's, there's no doubt. The costs have come down phenomenally, really. Mm. Um, you, you, when we, we used to think about space, you think about sort of all those big NASA movies that yeah. everyone's familiar with. These things are big, big yeah. exercises. Nowadays, it's almost like a consumer item yeah. where, where satellites can be put up. But anyone can get together, as you said, Shane, and just basically get organised. Um, of course, there's some licensing regulation mm. around all that, but uh, it means that companies with really strong business business sort of plans and, and a bit of backing can, can think about how they use space mm. a lot better. Great. How do we get a satellite into space? You want to do it? <laughs> well, well, I want to know how. I, I, actually, I'm going to mould that question a little. <laughs> um, for the, the, the smarter, the CRC is... Is the Cooperative Research Council. Thank you. Research Center. Center. So the, the Center, is, is it trying to, because these things are, are designed to make com- companies and jobs out mm-hmm. of using good science. Yep. Is, is the goal to create an infrastructure around data, or is it also to actually have a launch pad and create an industry about making CubeSats in Australia or making satellites and putting them up here? Because, uh, like, I, I don't understand enough about space to know is it is it like a game console you'll lose money on the xbox but it's the games that you make the money like what's the uh, the strategy for the crc in terms of how how do we what does that industry look like because what you've talked about are amazing exciting things around data which i assume australia has a very strong expertise in but i don't do we have this similar one in, in making satellites and so uh Oh, there's a few questions in yeah. what you just said. So I'll, I'll start with the, wh- where the money is. I think that was part of your question. There's cer- certainly the downstream, which means the use of the data is, is where all the, all the money is. Um, and, and, but that's not to say there's not in, in putting satellites together, building launches. That's also, um, a big industry and that's why the big, the big players, um, mm. such as Airbus, Boeing, um, get involved in that exercise as well. So, so I, I would say um, we're very interested in where you can use the data and combine the data with with many other different sources of data, so, such as uh, ground-borne sensors or airborne data. You know, we're sen- there's a lot of sensors around, as mm. we as you know. Um, I think I think the industry in Australia certainly sees itself. Uh, I guess we're, we're the the goal of the space agency is to you know the rising tide floats all boats, so they're definitely trying to get get more industry development right through the whole supply chain. Um, and and we are looking certainly def- I should say defence is also a major player, Australian defence, and they're certainly looking at indigenous space capability in Australia, how they can um, test and launch satellites. So there's there's going to be will the SmartSat CRC will participate in the in the whole spectrum in Australia in in terms of building launch um, through its partners and its base. Um, from our perspective Frontier SI who was a partner in that or in the SmartSat CRC along with another about 80 partners um, right across Australia and right across the university sector, the government sector and, and defence and, and so any, any company from a start up right up to the, the major players um, we're certainly interested in the data and how, mm. you can, how you can take that data and, and combine it with other data and open up applications that you've never really um, contemplated. Yeah. It, it, in the last sort of 30 seconds we've got, Graham, is 
I can imagine we'd see a shift here in terms of Australia's ownership and role as opposed to that import model where we're adding more value. Is that that, that the game plan overall? Yeah, we've actually been pretty good at um, adding value because we haven't had our own space capability, so working on others has been our sort of core expertise. So by the fact that we haven't really launched any uh, major satellites, we've actually been relying on Mm. others, and and that's built actually a capability in this country. So we're, we're doing pretty well at using everyone's stuff and uh, so that means you know we've yeah. got a we've got a spot to, to work with, and that's an expertise we'll build on here. Yeah, that, look, it sounds great, and we've always had great analytical capabilities and so forth yeah. in, in this country in a variety of fields. So um, it's good to hear. Um, great that this has been funded. Um, fantastic. Good to see this industry. Um, you know, Australia sort of uh, as uh, you know we're in the southern hemisphere. There aren't many stable southern hemisphere nations as well. So it's good to see that we're putting some some effort into this. Graham, thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us. And um, I hope the the next seven years are exciting for you guys. Thank you very much. Uh, Graham Koenig is the CEO of Frontier SI and uh, very happy to see that money going into that cooperative research centre because uh, finally we have a, a space agency here. It'll be as big as NASA by the end of next year. Um, no, it won't. But don't still, hold your breath on Yeah, that it's good. Anyway, folks, uh, thanks so much for listening to our science show today. We do appreciate that. Dr. Linden, good to see you. A joy as always, Dr. Shane. Yeah, go out and get cold again. Um, Dr. Laura, you're going to write some more grants before the end of the I day? Am. By the end of the day. Yeah, Pleasure, by the Dr. end of the Shane. day. Hopefully, you get some money. Remember, the success rate is almost 90%, I hear. Hang on, no. Have I got that the one wrong way minus. around? One minus. <laughs> wrong way around. Whop off the zero. <laughs> Sorry about that. Dr. Ray, good to see you. Good to see you too. <laughs> Liv's been doing our Twitter feed, folks. You can always follow us on Twitter. I'm Dr. Shane, and uh, remember, Science is everywhere. We will chat to you again next week. We look forward to that. We've got some great guests coming in again next week. Have a wonderful Sunday and thanks for listening to Triple R. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.